Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the New York Review Books classics. Our book this week is In a Lonely Place, written by Dorothy B. Hughes and originally published in 1947. And we are joined by film writer Farron Smith-Nemi. Welcome, Farron. We're so pleased to have you with us. I'm very pleased to be here. Before we get into the book, as a film fan, I'm very excited to be speaking to someone who voted in the most recent Sight and Sound poll. What was it like putting your list together? Uh, uh, stressful. <laughs> like, oh. I, you know, I, I think I think it is for everybody. Actually, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Like I, I was I was uh, exchanging DMs and texts and things. You know, with, with people who were putting theirs together, and I think like you know the overwhelming reaction was only ten. You know, and. Uh, I really love this movie, but if I put this movie in, is everybody going to make fun of me? You know, like mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, so I just said, okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not picking like a film history syllabus and I'm not, you know, like saying these are, you know, my only top 10 forevermore. I'm just giving you a snapshot of my taste. So that was how I did it. But I think everybody agrees that the fun part is not doing your own list. It's seeing everybody else's. That's true. And I'm not just saying this because you're here, but I think your list is awesome. Oh, thank you. (laughs) We really appreciated that you included uh, The Lady Vanishes, which is like our most underrated, if not favorite, Hitchcocks. So. Oh, yeah. No, I, you know, I was like, which one would I really love to watch right now? And I thought, yeah, that's it. You know, is, uh, yeah, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just delightful. Mm-hmm. I think it was um, Francois Truffaut said that, you know, he, he had watched it many times trying to figure out the mechanics of why it worked so well. And every time he just got so caught up in the movie, he quit taking notes, you know, he quit like, <laughs> thinking about it. Uh, that's, that's The Lady Vanishes. So. Yeah, it's a perfect little, little movie. So Dorothy B. Hughes was the author of 14 crime and detective novels. Three of her books were made into feature films. Of those, In a Lonely Place, directed by Nicholas Ray, and Ride the Pink Horse, both directed by and starring Robert Montgomery, are the most remembered or regarded, although Ride the Pink Horse isn't that remembered. Um, <laughs> I did manage to catch it on Noir Alley a few years back. It's, you know, it's in, it's in the Criterion Collection. I have, I have that disc. I really like Ride the Pink Horse. I, you know, I think it's a lovely movie, but... It's very bizarre, yeah yeah in a lonely place is kind of on a different level yeah yeah indeed was your first exposure to this story through the book or the film uh the film yeah yeah Um, Yeah. same here i've always said that i kind of prefer seeing the film first because uh Mm. it's really rare to watch the film and then go back to the book and and read the book and think uh you know this isn't what i imagined you know this is kind of disappointing when you go to the book you're almost always going to get you know like a, a more detailed perhaps even richer understanding of the characters etc mm. so i I, I'm fine with doing it that way. In this, in this case, of course, you know, you find something completely different and you know, like right. wonderful in its own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The cover features a photograph from 1947 taken by Elliot Erwitt, titled Los Angeles. The cover depicts a single person alone in a black room. The only light source is a window in the background illuminating a small part of the man's profile. The photographer was a French immigrant to the U.S. He moved to L.A. with his father in 1941 and was left there at the age of 16 when his dad relocated to New Orleans. Ironically, Irwin is known for documenting humor in everyday life, but this image is not one of them. It is is very memorable and terrifying, and I think it fits well with the book. What do you think of the image? I have seen the MYRB copy like more than once, but my copy is in this Library of America um, thing. So, oh, okay. uh, cool. so yeah, Sarah Weinman, if you know who she is, she's the uh, thriller and mystery writer for the New York Times Book Review. And uh, she did a few years ago a set of um, women crime writers, so suspense novels of the 40s and then the 50s. And uh, I also recommend this set because there's not a clinker in it. <laughs> but uh, the, I mean, the 
MYRB is famous for its covers, justifiably, yes. and, a, and it's it's a, a very beautiful photo that you know like conveys urban loneliness with, without feeling cliched. So I, I do like it very much. Yeah, it is yeah. very unique to a lot of things I think you could have picked, and it definitely is just a direct visual translation of what the title could be. I, I think it's a great choice. So speaking of urban loneliness, we wanted to talk about the title, which is a striking one. And the word and variations of the word lonely permeate through the book in all sorts of ways. To you reading the book, what what did you think made the world of the characters uh, a lonely place? It's 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 partly just um, Dixon's own character. You know, I mean, yeah. like m- most of the other people in this book don't seem particularly lonely. <laughs> it's 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 very much him. You know, I have only been to Los Angeles once, very briefly, and uh, but I feel when I read this book like I know it. Mm-hmm. She gives you like street corners and things. She describes bars and uh, and mists coming in off the ocean. You know, and uh, like beach dunes and things and, and you you really it's it's not simply that you feel like you're there which I think any competent writer could do she gives you a, a, a feeling of what they're like at certain times of day what what kind of people are there what what kind of feeling would they give you if you were there it's really quite amazing um, it, it, and she does uh, talk about like his lonely places in indefinite parts, you know, in, I mean, there's a certain bitter irony to it as well, because he is deliberately seeking out lonely places so that he can, right. you, know, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, get on with his, you know, vicious work. And, uh, and at the same time, he's also trapped in, in some of those lonely places, you know, and in the lonely, the loneliness inside his own head as well. Also, I mean, I think um, the uh, the the movie really latches on to that phrase too. I mean, I think yeah. everyone agrees that it is one of the great noir titles. You know, um, yeah. you feel like you you must have heard it many times before, but I think you know it is entirely original to Dorothy Hughes, and it works so beautifully. Mm-hmm. I love how it's not the lonely place; it's prepositional and it's poetic in that way, where it's in a lonely place. And it really sticks in the mind. And I, ever since I first heard the the title of the movie, I was like, "Oh, I want to see that. I have to see it. <laughs> yeah. I want to read a little bit of a section where I think it illustrates well, like what the concept of the lonely place is." In according Dorothy Hughes's words, he was there for a long time, lost in a world of swirling fog and crashing wave, a world empty of all but these things and his grief and the keening of the foghorn far at sea, lost in a lonely place. And the red knots tightened in his brain. He was there for a long time, but there was no time in this sad, empty shell of night. He was there for so long that he startled when he heard something running, almost frightened when the small, dark shape hurtled upon him. He realized quickly that it was a dog, a friendly terrier. He said, hello, fellow, and the dog nosed his hand. He wanted to cry. He said again, hello, fellow. And then he heard footsteps coming over the sand, and he no longer wanted comfort of tears excitement charged him where there was a dog there was a master or a mistress his hand slowly stroked the dog's curly head nice fellow he said the dog was nuzzling him when the girl came out of the fog dix looked up to her and said hello she wasn't afraid and she said carelessly hello he smiled she didn't know that behind that smile lay hatred of laurel hatred of rub and sylvia of mel terrace of old fergus Steele, of every one in the living world of everyone but Brucey, and Brucey was dead. That's really, you know, possibly the climactic moment of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the many things I like about about Dorothy Hughes is that she um, she skirts cliche. She never like really descends into it. I think the cliche thing would be to have the dog instinctively dislike dicks. Yeah, it it it, it does not, <laughs> you know. It goes right up to him so that, you know, you're fearful for the dog before you're fearful for the young woman who comes over the dunes. Sure. Um, I think it does a really good job building up how the mental 
loneliness state that Dix lives in is able to create this killer that is our quote-unquote protagonist of the book. Yeah, you eventually, you you put together what his uh, what his mentality is like kind of piece by piece. Yeah. And at, at, in, in that passage, towards the end, you're really starting to get it, so. Talking about Dix, the killer and main character in the book, first of all, he has one of the great noirish names, uh, which permeates <laughs> all over this book between... Dick Steele, Rub Nikolai, yeah. Laurel Gray, lots of yeah. great ones. There's also a lot of classic crime characters in Dick's. Some of the ones that stuck out would be the killer that is friends with the detective hunting him in this sort of cat and mouse game where one side knows all. Also the trauma-riddled former soldier with his morality in tatters. How do you see this character speaking to like post-World War II society and the men that have come back from war. I mean, well, presumably we're not, I would recommend, I guess, that, you know, b- people read the book, you know, be- before they listen to this or, or whatever, you know, t- to answer this, I would like to go into, you know, some, I, it's not a spoiler to say that, that Dix is a killer, what we would call a serial killer. I think you start putting that together at the very beginning of the book. It would be interesting to me to, you know, be able to talk to somebody who read it when it came out, like kind of early sure. on, and see when the penny drops for that. Because we're so used to uh, serial killer, we would call it literature, but, you know, uh, serial killer everything that, you know, I, I think like, you know, maybe by 10 pages in, you've got the point. Whereas maybe, you know, in the late 1940s, you, I think, would know it like by the second chapter or whatever, but it, it would be a slightly slower process. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting because uh, you know what we discover about him is that you know it, it's not that um, the war brought out savagery and violence in him. We find out that he committed his first, you know, and psychologically to him, most important murder before he got out of the Air Force, while Mm -hmm. he was still in England, while the war was still going on. And uh, that is interesting to me because I guess the presumption, and it's it's a very common character, especially in film noir, you know, the, uh, the, the veteran who can't let go of, uh, you know, the violence and, and the trauma that he endured in, in Europe. But what we learned is that for, um, for Dix, the, the war was really quite pleasant for him. You know, his, um, his killing was done, you know, from like thousands of feet in the air. He, he didn't have to see the consequences of it. Sometime yeah. in the middle of the war, he became like a colonel and then a general's adjutant, and uh, and he was loving it because it was counteracting the uh, the class resentments that he had suffered from all his life. The feeling that he should have been a rich kid, and he was surrounded by rich kids, and yet he was not a rich kid, and he didn't have it like that. And God damn it, that was not fair. So uh, and the the war really kind of counteracted that. But then towards the end, he has this horrible encounter with Brucey, which is explained and yet not fully explained. Yeah. Um, Dor- Dorothy Hughes, she lets you fill in blanks, which I, I find wonderful. She does not feel that she has to tell you everything. I feel like she's giving me credit for, for being <laughs> able to, you know, the, the me as a reader, She's saying, "Okay, Farron, you you don't I don't have to spell this out for you. You can you can put this together." Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's he's typical and yet he's not typical. I think she wants us to see him as somebody who had something deeply wrong with him before he ever went abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was on that track. And uh, and then he comes back and something in him is completely broken. The, the power and destruction that he felt with, with Brucey is something that he wants to recapture with other women that he encounters. It's really quite brilliant. Yeah. Do you think it's interesting that Hughes somewhat implicates the audience by telling the story through the killer's point of view? I feel like that's something that wasn't as common in that time period. No, I don't, I don't think it was. You know, I mean, you, you can see... 
you can see bit I'm, I'm sure that it was done before yeah. because my my assumption is always that it it's never the first you know, like there will always be so but I, I i do feel like it must have been unusual now it's really quite common yeah you know, mm-hmm. especially like in in our era like with the popularity of um I don't know, something like Gone Girl or, or whatever, or even Mary Higgins Clark, like a couple of decades before that, you would get All the like Ryan um, shows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, it's interesting because you are in this guy's head, but the fact that it's third person, I think, yeah. gives you just that bit of distance that you need not to completely recoil and say, I cannot bear to be around this person because <laughs> Dixon is awful. he's really awful i mean in in addition to being a killer he's also he's so conceited (laughs) he's like he's so full of himself he thinks he's so superior to everybody you know and and you're you're with him all of this way i mean aren't there just times when he's like you know he gave her you know just just the right smile you know to to charm her and you're like (laughs) you're like and of course the delightful thing is by the end you find out that you know at least two women were not fooled at all um so uh, or or at least or that you know or that they figured it out before it was too late Mm -hmm. reading the book i felt that the writing was unusually visual and I think that came from the intense control of the color palette, the LA setting, like you mentioned. And there is this focus on light and shadow, and you can see the someone's watch illuminating and the lampposts and, and all that. Did that stand out to you as well? And what do you think makes writing visual or not, or translatable to the screen, perhaps? I think, um, you know, like when Burnett Guffey was uh, was lensing in a lonely place, he he really had a lot to work with here. Mm-hmm. It is by no means entirely a nighttime set uh, novel, but night is when he does his hunting, and uh, and those scenes are really key. It's it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what she's doing because it's really quite subtle. She does not mm-hmm. go into long, flamboyant, detailed descriptions. There's really kind of an elegant terseness to the way she can give you like a, a setting and, um, and show you something. There's several scenes that are set by the beach that, he, mm-hmm. that she describes really well. Would have to uh, check my bookmarks <laughs> to, like, to see which ones I, I'm, I'm thinking of. But yeah, I mean, it, I, w- I would say that she's an intensely visual without, without overemphasizing it. She gives you just enough to see. So yeah, in, in that sense, I mean, I can see someone reading this and saying, you know, well, this, this is my establishing shot right here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and then going on with it. It is quite cinematic, and I would be interested in knowing how much of a film fan she was. You know, how how many and what kind of movies she saw and liked. Sure. I also do love that one of the main characters is named Laurel Gray. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Dixon Steele, she's way too good a writer not to know what she was doing with that that name. I'm sorry, I just don't believe it for a minute. Um, But I I really would love to know where the hell the name Brub came from. I I, I can't figure out if it's short for anything. I I don't know. I've never encountered another character named that. When I was I, I was going around like seeing blog posts and things that you know, several people had rendered it as Burb, <laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, it's it's a very strange name, but you remember all of them, and I think it says something that most of the character names made it into the uh, movie, even yeah. though very little else did. True. Yeah. Hughes's approach to suspense is quite unique. Instead of worrying about who the killer could be, we wonder if our quote-unquote protagonist will be caught. Every dirty deed seems to play out behind the scenes from the kills to the sex. Do you feel that this rejection of the usual tricks to creating suspense uh, was effective? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it makes, for me, it makes the book not just a more pleasant read, but a more rewarding read. 
I certainly I have read violent, disturbing books before, right? Mm-hmm. But but the fact that she does not give you those scenes, you know, and kind of leaves them mostly up to your imagination. Again, I felt like she was showing a certain sensitivity to the reader. You know, like I, I'm not I'm not going to rub your nose in this. His his one male victim, Mel. I found myself really curious about how that went down. You know, and, and you, know, yeah. you know, you never really find out. I would I would love to know. You know, like like did he just uh, you know he talks continuously about how Mel is an alcoholic, and what I love is that while he's doing that, Hughes is showing you very, very carefully and subtly, but I think unmistakably that this guy himself is an alcoholic, you know, like in, in, in the yeah. making. His, his obsession with drinks, you know, oh, I didn't need a drink, but I'm going, you know, but I, I had, he had a drink anyway. So his contempt for Mel, who's like obviously in the throes of alcoholism, I wonder, you know, did, did that happen when Mel was passed out? You know, mm-hmm. or, or did it happen like in, in a fit of anger because Mel wouldn't give him money or something? That's also equally plausible. Right. Uh, I love one of my favorite lines when Laurel is telling Dix that she knows Mel couldn't have lent him all of this stuff. She's like, you know, Mel, Mel wouldn't give his friend the cork out of a bottle. that's that's good so yeah i mean it could have been like you know mel's stinginess reminding him of his uncle who he hates so much i do really like the fact that i feel like we're given just enough information to where it's not it's it's not prissy it doesn't feel like the production code or or whatever but yeah. at at the same time it's it's not kind of uh forcing us to to relive some of the violence itself the way his brain works is as disturbing as it needs to get i think i think she mm-hmm. must have decided that just being in the company of his insanity and his seething misogyny was going to be her major effect it was all that was needed for me as a reader. Yeah. yeah, I felt like what she withheld made the story more terrifying to me. Um, and I wanted to read one little section that chilled me and I actually lost sleep over it. This is right after Dix meets Laurel for the first time and has like a brief little conversation with her. And it says, he shrugged. He had an expected success. Therefore, he wasn't disappointed. He'd made the preliminary maneuver. The question now was of time. He was stimulated by merely talking with her. She was alert, even with that ghostly blue light coating her face. He moved back to his own quarters, hearing again the tap of her heels. He swung suddenly and looked up to the balcony. She was just entering her apartment, the darkened one, the third. He continued, content to his bungalow. He'd made headway. He knew now where to find her. And that is so scary because what like I think Hughes draws is this like very close similarity between a man just pursuing a woman and being like, oh, hey, there's this beautiful woman in my building and now I know where she lives. But also a killer stalking his murder victim. And there's nothing necessarily on the face of it that's horrible. Like he's just remembering where she she lived. But those little details, the tap of her heels and the number of the apartment it mm-hmm. just freaked me the hell out i mean did you did you notice too like how how big a part like sound plays in in this yeah. movie too you know i mean that's that's like at least the second time he's talked about the tap of someone's heels when he's following his first potential victim earlier yes. like he's he's listening to like how her uh, her footfalls are, are are speeding up and taking pleasure in the idea that you know the way her foot sounds have changed indicates to him that she knows he's there and she's frightened you know mm-hmm. that's that's another really chilling thing because i mean i think i would say virtually all women and probably a lot of men have been in a situation on a deserted street at night where you hear someone behind you you don't want to turn around and be obvious you know but you're listening right. to them you know and you're thinking are they listening to me? 
And here Hughes is saying, yeah, this guy is absolutely listening to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I I mean, I think probably because she is a female writer, she understands like that distinctly woman fear of a of a sexualized form yeah. of violence mm-hmm. more than more than some other writers. So for as many genre conventions as the book helped to establish, it also upends others notably with regards to women. So we have this maybe seeming femme fatale in Laurel Gray, and then a standard kind of good girl in Sylvia, the detective's wife. But by the the book's end, we realize that these women are not actually in competition with one another, but they're coordinating Mm -hmm. uh, to prove Dix's guilt. And the author of the afterword in this NYRB edition says that we have an homme fatale rather than a femme fatale. What did you make of the book's female characters and their role in exposing Dix's crimes? And did you think the ending was feminist? I would, I, you know, feminist, you know, like in the purest sense of that term, perhaps not. But I would say it would have to be very satisfying to most feminists. <laughs> um, so, uh, <laughs> okay, good point. Uh, yeah, you know, they 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 nail him and um, and it's also satisfying because he's been talking about them in in such a a, a superior way you know mm-hmm. uh, on the one hand from the moment he meets sylvia he senses that she s- senses that she may be seeing through him in in, in some way mm-hmm. but at the same time you know he's he's very much got her categorized he's always talking about her in in relation to brub you know and uh sort of judging her domesticity etc and uh and then you have his reaction to laurel which of course you know is like mostly sexual you know and uh seeing her as like this this conquest you know like the the one woman he's going to sleep with and not kill because she's the one who's good enough for him you know and uh the way that you know he's he's always positioning himself as being so much smarter than they are and then in the end when we find out that has not at all been the case yeah that that is it's really satisfying I mean there I read one um one critic who was talking about the fact that that Sylvia like at, at the very end like runs into to Brub's arms but what I liked about that moment is she's not sobbing like oh honey you know she's she's saying you know like what is it? We did it, you know, or, or like it worked. Yeah, it it worked. It worked. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Which is something different, and I think you know much much better than you know like oh thank God you're here, honey. <laughs> um, yeah, we don't see Laurel at all, you know, and uh, it, I think it, like the ending is excellent the the way it is. You know, if if she had asked me, I might have said be nice to see laurel show up you know it would be nice to give laurel like that moment the the Mm. last time we really see her is uh when she tells him you know i i don't i don't know what's happened to mel but you know like he didn't leave you all this stuff you know maybe he's in rio maybe he's in rehab i guess her either her brain is not like taken in the idea that maybe mel is dead or she doesn't want him to know that she has that possibility in her head but i believe that's the last time we actually physically see laurel so and i think it's more of the latter because i do think there's a point where they all go dancing and brub is very specific in trying to get laurel away from dicks and instead of dancing with her they have like this really secretive conversation in the corner of the club yeah one of the things that i i really love about the book is that she is so clever and maybe also ahead of her time or at least you know like like kind of a what we call a pioneer Mm -hmm. in terms of of how she shows her her serial killer, which she would not have called, but you know, we're we're also used to the serial killer and his his sense of superiority. And uh, I, this really, I really liked this. It's the scene where um, Dixon is having dinner with Brub and Sylvia, 
and this other couple, Maud and Carly, who uh, <laughs> Dix kind of hates on sight, come over. And uh, not Carly, Carrie, excuse me. And uh, so Carrie said, he's insane, of course. Dix turned his glass in his hand. Carrie Jepson was a clod. He wouldn't be married to a stupid little talking machine if he had any spirit. The obvious reach of his imagination was, he's insane, of course. It would never occur to him that any reason other than insanity could make a man a killer. That's what all the dolts around town would be parodying. He's insane, of course. He's insane, of course. It took imagination to think of a man, sane as you or I, who killed. He hid against mm -hmm. his highball class, the smile forming on his lips. I mean, this, this is great, you know, this, this is like the, yeah. the Zodiac killer, you know, like 30 years mm -hmm. ahead of the Zodiac killer becoming a, a thing. It, you know, she, really, she really gets the sense of superiority, you know, that a lot of serial killers have or that they want to, to display and show off. You know, the, the kind mm -hmm. of cat and mouse thing. And of course, you know, that's key to his whole relationship with Brub. The fact that, you know, he runs into Brub and instead of, you know, saying, like giving him the brush off, that was then, this is now Brub, we're not friends anymore. He decides he's going to pick up the friendship again, mm -hmm. which is incredibly conceited. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, for this guy who's like going out and regularly killing women to say, oh, you know, I'm going to make friends with a cop who's on the case. <laughs> you know, and ask the, him about it. <laughs> yeah. The, the arrogance of that is really, really something. Given that you're here, we have to talk really in depth about the film adaptation. <laughs> so it takes some very different turns away from how the book goes. I think there's two big ones. One is that instead of being a poser of trying to write a crime novel to get money from his uncle and be a part of this crime scene, he's instead in the movie a very successful screenwriter who's just in a bit of a lull. And I found that was an interesting dichotomy between how the character is set up. The other one, and this is the big spoiler for both the book and the movie, so big pause. <laughs> but in the book, it is revealed that he is the killer and he is caught. In the movie, he is actually innocent of the crime. And it's more that he just had the capability to be a killer. Mm -hmm. And realizing that this man who seems successful and seems more stable in the world could be a killer himself, is that's the frightening aspect rather than being the serial killer himself. Do you think these are successful changes and do you think they alter the book's themes in any way? I mean, I yeah, I mean, I think there's there's no question that It'll Only Place, the, the movie is like a stone cold classic, probably the best movie yes. Nicholas Ray ever made. And you know, I mean, I I feel like there, there are even more differences that like beyond the plot i feel like uh, sure. uh ray's in a lonely place is fundamentally a, a very a romantic movie it's you know it's it's about thwarted twisted romance but you know it is conceived as a love story nevertheless and that god knows is is not what dorothy hughes is, <laughs> no. is, is after in her book another thing is that I, you know, Dick Steele in the movie, as played by by Humphrey Bogart, I mean, I think I think it's kind of more than a lull. It's implied that his his lack of self control, his inability, you know, to suck up to anybody, you know, his inability yeah. even to be like sort of minimally polite to people he dislikes, which we see almost, <laughs> you know, in in one of the first scenes where you know he winds up like slugging this successful guy. Yeah. Hollywood, you can't do that. You know, everybody knew you can't do that. And yet here he is doing that. So I think it's implied that, you know, he is not washed up yet. But if he doesn't turn around the road that he's on, he's going to be washed up. And pretty soon. Yeah. And that's why, um, you know, the sweet character of his agent who says he's, you know, he just needs one good screenplay. You know, and he can he can turn this around, but you know, I mean, I think the the flip side of what the agent is saying is that if he doesn't, that may be it for him. Mm -hmm. And all 
all of this is is stuff that you know it simply it simply doesn't figure in here you know like uh, mm-hmm. Laura Lynn the book she's a, a wannabe actress but she hasn't really gotten very far and otherwise everyone is very much on the margins of uh, of the business and Ray and the screenwriters they chose to uh, to you know set it right square in the middle of, of the business with all of its all of its lies, all of its compromises, all of its kind of soul-sucking uh, hardships, and uh, and have that be what was going on. So by doing this, right? I mean, I I think did you guys feel that that Dick's in the movie must be talented that that he was an artist of of some sort because. I mean, I I did, you know. Yes. I, I I felt like he had real talent, and the the movie is interesting. I think even in a modern sense, because there there are so many debates over the flawed genius, you know, the the yeah. the the talented man who is you know abusing people, making other people miserable. That's what we have in, in Dix, and uh, I think the movie. You know, you 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 feel for the guy, but at the same time, the movie is not letting him off the hook. You're seeing how destructive yeah. he is. And it does feel like a somewhat of a composite of Bogart himself in his personal life, because I was reading through some, there was an interview with Louisa Brooks, or it, it came from her book where she said that, oh, Humphrey Bogart's perfect for the role of Dick Steele because he will lash out in anger and be violent with Bacall, who is his wife, and this would he would be able to just put himself in that role and be Dick Steele. And so it feels complicit in its implicating of the people that made the movie itself, which I found interesting. And I, I, I agree. I think it's satisfying how it puts it into Hollywood's shoes and points a finger at itself and makes the audience realize just how fake and cruel this world is that we would expect killers and violent people to be people on the street, like in in Hughes's book. And it, it's able to subvert that even further, I found very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, the the other layer, of course, is, you know, N- Nicholas Ray and Gloria Graham, their their marriage was um, on the road to, to Reno. You know, they were, uh, they were definitely having a, a really hard time. And uh, Nicholas Ray, you know, don't need to get into details, but he was clearly no better roses to be married to or, you know, even associated with for most of his life. As much as people really loved him, you know, and Bogart, too, had a lot of friends who really adored him. So, I, I mean, you can see that kind of being worked into in a lonely place, too. Yeah. Is that there are like a number of friends and people who you know love dicks around him, and he just keeps behaving in alienating ways. You know, it's 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 very frustrating. It's like you know, come closer, no, not that close, pack up. You know, that's just a a different aspect of his self-destructive behavior. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the standout sections of the film, the ones that will be remembered in, in film history the most? There's their ride together, you know, in, in, the, yeah. in the car where he recites those famous lines to her. I really love the, uh, the bonfire scene on the beach. The beauty of it and the way it's, it's kind of, it's a bit of a relief. It's uh, the 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 tension is is not as bad as it is in other sections, you know, and it's I, I think it's where you see what all of their lives could be like, you know, if if mm-hmm. circumstances were different and if their characters were different. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I I also love at the beginning his his dealing with Mildred Atkinson, who is. Uh, she means well. She's not stupid. She's just, you know, like naive and kind of clueless. You know, like uh, <laughs> she goes, she goes in there and she's she's telling him all about Althea Bruce, you know, with like, oh, you know, and then she goes swimming, you know, and then she starts yeah screaming, help, 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 you know. And he's like, oh God, no. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's funny while at the same time it's it's setting up 
the uh, the accusations that are going to dog him for the rest of the movie. Uh, it's very well done. Mm-hmm. I, I I think the the maybe the most famous part of the movie is when Dix is pretty accurately describing how the killing could be done, yeah. and Brub's character is actually choking his wife as they reenact it. It's shocking how much he enjoys the act of describing how he can get a murder through and it makes the audience really start that's when i think you you really start questioning like this guy really has to be a killer yeah and the fact that he's not is not a relief no so and and that's really i think a strangely impactful moment and one that i haven't seen a lot of other movies get to replicate I, I think that's that's really that's really true. You know, like the the fact that you find out in the end that no, he's he's not a killer. But you know, it's it's too late for him and Laurel. You know, he's already destroyed that relationship. And uh, you know, and it's it's tragic in that you realize, you know, it's it's going to have a bad effect on Laurel. It's going to have a, probably an even worse effect on Dix because you know he's not likely to find this again. And at the same time, I mean, maybe you disagree, but when I when I watch it, I'm like, God, this is sad. But Laurel, girl, you are well out of it. I mean, like, uh, yeah. I, there's there's no question in my mind that that relationship is going to turn like personally abusive toward her at at, at some. Well, hell, it already had, right? But you know, it, <laughs> it, even if even if things had not gone south, you know, eventually that side of him would have been trained on her. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about how the film enters into some contemporary debates about problematic geniuses. Um, But in a broader sense, do you think noir is still relevant and does it still speak as well to us today as maybe it did to the first readers of In a Lonely Place in 1947? Oh God, I, I would say it's more popular than ever. It's more popular than it was when it was coming out. You know, like um, mm-hmm. these, uh, a lot of what we think of as, as classic noirs did okay when they came out. You know, they made money, they were, but very few of them were major hits. In, in A Lonely Place, I, I can't, I believe its returns were like not much better than kind of meh because the ending is bleak. Yeah. But nowadays, noir, it's harder, I think, to sell a lot of younger people on older movies. But one thing that it's been proven that they love is noir. You ask anyone who programs a repertory house, you know, what gets butts in the seats? Noir. Pre-code to a, a somewhat lesser extent, but noir, that's what really brings them in. You know, it's also true with Noir Alley and the Noir City Festival. I yeah. think these movies really really speak to people i think and you know it's it's not just you know like kind of the bleak societal outlook or whatever or the violence or it's also um in a lonely place is not a fun movie but a lot of other noirs are you know they have great tough guy dialogue they have you know um amusingly tough women sashaying through it you know and high heels and ankle straps and it, it, they uh, the look of it is fun you know the they are enjoyable too so uh, in in a lonely place i think holds a, a special place because it is tragic there's a yeah. aside from like the mildred scene at the beginning or whatever there's there's not a lot that's even kind of wryly uh, amusing about it but it, it certainly holds your attention Hmm. Finally, I want to ask a little bit, you had messaged me when we were getting this arranged that you thought it was the godmother of serial killer books and has an elevated, <laughs> yeah. yeah, an elevated like level beyond what the genre usually entails because of how it was written. I'm sure a lot of that comes back to what we've talked about already, but is there any final points you want to bring up about why you think it is not just one of the great crime novels, but just one of the best novels? I, you know, I, I really, I feel like there are some really brutal, chilly truths yeah. being served up in this book. Uh, things about, you know, that, that don't simply apply to serial killers, which, thank God, is, you know, a tiny sliver of the population, no matter how much publicity they may get. 
But I think that there is something really cold and clinical about the way she looks at how certain men look at women. Mm-hmm. She is really fearless about that. And you read it and you feel it. I think it would be a lesser book if she was implying she does not, that this is how all men feel, or even how this, this is how yeah. most men feel. But I think she is telling you very clearly this is a mentality that exists. You know, whether or not it yeah. manifests in dead bodies, this is real. This is what some men are like. And that, you know, it, to me, it's really worthwhile. And it really says something about her skills at a no- as a novelist that instead of like, you know, throwing the book across the room, I am really fascinated with this guy. You know, at no point do I like him. At no point no. do I sympathize with him. I was rooting for him to get caught. And yet I could not look away from him because I felt the truth of what she was showing me. Mm-hmm. Do you have um, any other essential film noirs that you feel like are the most worth watching besides this as oh a final goodness. recommendation? <laughs> yeah. there, are, there, are, there, there are so many. I mean, I, I don't, it really kind of depends on, on who is listening to this. Maybe a, a lot of people who are listening to this or are interested in it have already seen like the big, granddaddies of the genre like you know, Maltese Falcon, Out of the Past. Uh, out of the Past, I think, would be my other favorite. Yeah, uh, out, out, of, out of the Past is is really, really beautiful. I mean, I, I really like, um, I really like Laura. I really like Otto Preminger. The, I guess the other thing about noir is, is that there's a big range. You know, you can have something that's set like in a really wealthy kind of la-di-da milieu like Laura. You know? mm-hmm. and, then, and then you can go down to something like uh, He Walked by Night, you know, with, with the great Lawrence yeah. Tierney. There's a serial killer noir for you um and uh you know and and that's that's like you know kind of a working class down at the heels sort of uh atmosphere that that one has going and it's equally worthwhile maybe noir uh, a lot of people feel that the term has been cheapened because it, it used to people used to apply it to movies you know with sort of stricter rules they would say oh well you know you have to have a femme fatale you have to have you know like um, it has to be a crime story it has to be this it has to be that whereas my friend Imogen Smith who who is like one of the noir experts maintains that that noir yeah, is no, a real stuff. name drop there <laughs> it's a, it's um it's it, Noir is a style. Noir, noir is a, you know, and it, it's, it's also an attitude. And if you look at it that way, you know, then you can kind of broaden the perspective a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I have been watching more kind of B-noir pictures, which are, are fun in their own respect. You know, you're not going to find, from, for the most part, you know, you're you're not going to find like a Cap M masterpiece like Out of the Past, except maybe for something like Detour, you know, which is is a masterpiece. But oh. <laughs> so, yes. you know, like, like made like made for fifty bucks in a pack of chewing gum, and it's so great. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like uh, you know, but I've been watching other things like uh, Decoy and The Missing Juror, and uh, and enjoying those a lot mm-hmm. too. I mean, I would recommend, uh, you could do a lot worse than going on Letterboxd and just looking at somebody there is maintaining a list of the movies that have been shown on Noir Alley. That's a show that takes a pretty oh, elastic sure. definition of, of Noir, but you know, you're definitely going to find yeah. some hidden gems there. Yeah. And I'd love to see how the genre has adapted over the years into neo-noir and like post-neo-noir. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Also, how it's expanded, you know, internationally with movies like Cure or something. I mean, I would say that Park Chan-wook's latest movie, Decision to Leave, that, you know, has... Yeah, has... That, the greatest form of film noir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As far as modern film noir goes. 
Well, awesome. We have so many movies to get on watching now. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with us. I, I, re I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. That was awesome. That was excellent. And I'm really excited to look up some of the film noirs that I didn't know about that she mentioned towards the end. Me too. I thought one thing that was interesting about Dorothy B. Hughes is she's actually one of the few famous people from my alma mater, the University of New Mexico. I know, right? It's a rare New Mexico representation on this podcast. I felt proud of my, my home state and my home college. Even though she didn't get a degree from there. Don't remind that. We can, <laughs> we can just say that she's an honorary graduate had, of UNM. She, well, she wrote a history of the college. Yeah. Which is almost like... That's that's as good as more we get. extensive than being a graduate, don't you think? A hundred percent. I'm gonna drop my letterbox lists of my favorite film noirs. I'm of a Nicholas you are. Ray ranking, uh, everything I can. So everyone be prepared. Oh, my sight and sound ballot coming to you this week, folks. And I have no letterboxed anything, unfortunately. You do have a top one hundred. I'll drop my top one hundred. There we go. We'd love <laughs> to see it. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Our next episode we will cover the granddaddy, Stalingrad. The granddaddy of war novels. Exactly. A brick of a book by Vasily Grossman. So get reading, people. You'll need to start as soon as possible. But I can tell you one thing before we get to the episode next week. It's worth it. It's totally worth it. It's great. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. I would love to know when did they start realizing Dix was the. Oh, we have a knock on the door. Yeah, sorry, one second. On the leak coming in. Oh, yeah. Kitchen. Hi. Sorry to intrude. No worries. Uh, is it still leaking? Is it bad? It's not. I mean, you can come see it, but. I got this bucket that I don't have to put in there until the landlord comes. <laughs>